Shermaine Jones gave birth to her daughter on July 4, 2019. To pass the time in those early baby months, Shermaine would take her daughter on long walks in their neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia. We would go walking on Monument Avenue, and the looming figures of Stonewall Jackson, right, Robert E. Lee, it was a confrontation with history. It's such a beautiful space, but it has this horrific history. Um, And I felt very much that I wanted a different future for my daughter. In the coming months, protests over those Confederate monuments in Richmond would come to a head. But at the same time, Shermaine turned to art to make sense of her feelings around these monuments. At the VMFA, we had um, Kehinde Wiley, who was commissioned to do Rumors of War, the representation of a Black man on a horse as a parallel to the figures of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee as a way of thinking about Blackness in in a space of veneration rather than these horrific figures of white supremacy being the ones that were being venerated and, and, and touted as heroes. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, using art, books, and history to live with the legacies of anti-Blackness and celebrate Black joy. Shemaine, you study African-American emotions in literature. But in 2020, you felt a little bit paralyzed by how to respond in your own work and life to the twin crises, COVID-19, and the virulent anti-Blackness that people were expressing. Can you talk about that moment of sort of paralysis you experienced? Absolutely. I think many of us shared a similar feeling of how do I respond to this moment? I always turn to literature as a way of understanding my world and shaping my vision, and particularly Black women's literature. And at that moment, I felt a bit like Nikki Giovanni talks about in this poem called For Sandra, where she's having this conversation with her neighbor who asks her, you know, why don't you write, you know, poetry about the sky and poetry about the trees? And she says, you know, when I look outside my window, I don't see trees. I see asphalt, right? This is my reality. And at the end of that poem, she talks about perhaps these are not poetic times. But the irony is that as she's saying that, she is constructing and writing a poem. But what it taught me is that writing itself is a response. It is a way of engaging the moment, even if it is about being self-conscious about the paralysis that you're experiencing. That's very much what that poem is about. And so she talks about in the poem that it might not lend itself. She says revolution doesn't lend itself to bebopping, right? So the poem may not rhyme, right? It might be a new generation of poets come out of a certain kind of era. And in some ways, I feel that this particular moment in 2020 really informed my scholarship, but also my pedagogy to move in a direction where I started to prioritize self-care for myself, but be intentional about my teaching my students how to be attentive to their bodies and to their needs and giving students autonomy, agency, and, and more voice in what they produce in the class. Thinking back to COVID and 2020, remind us of what that moment felt like for you personally, but also for your students. So for me, I am a native New Yorker. Many of my family members work in the hospital setting. And so as um, people who are still going to work essential workers, uh, they were not quarantining at home with the rest of us. And they were really on the front lines. And New York was hit extremely hard. So they were becoming very familiar with grief and with death on a really daily basis. And that was a really alienating and emotionally debilitating experience. And because our students at VCU tend to work 
more than um, some traditional students, um, tend to also be caretakers for their parents. They were also experiencing this, right? This um, sense of disillusionment, this sense of fear, this sense of anxiety. And so I wanted to, again, be attentive to the different things that they were confronting and to be intentional about creating strategies and resources for them to to have a space to talk about that experience. And it also made me newly attuned to the ways that, for instance, um, Toni Morrison Sula actually talks about the tuberculosis epidemic. And she has this moment in the text where she talks about how black people were disproportionately impacted in 1895 by the tuberculosis epidemic and the anxiety that she felt as a mother lingering over her children and just listening for their breath and and hoping and praying that they were still alive. So there was a way for us to think about what we were experiencing and see it revealed in the literature and think about the systemic issues that play into that, that lead to what Sadia Hartman describes as skewed life chances. So I was also giving them a historical context, a theoretical framework to make sense of their contemporary moment. And you became a mother right around this time. How did that influence your thinking as you became a mother of this baby girl? So um, I gave birth to my daughter in July 4th, 2019. You know, when I became pregnant, I, you know, at this time, there were two conversations happening on in, on social media and, and, and more largely um, celebrities were more talking about being pregnant. And it seemed like this beautiful experience. People were having milk baths and all of these maternity shoots and so forth. But on the other end of it, you had Serena Williams and Beyonce Knowles coming out and talking about the fact that they were, you know, Know, wealthy, successful Black women did not protect them from experiencing life-threatening complications like preeclampsia, etc. And that if in both of their cases, they almost died while giving birth. I knew for myself, my education, my PhD was not going to protect me. My class position was not going to protect me from this, right? That Black women are two to three times more likely to die in childbirth or have complications that lead to to their, their death. It was alarming that... I couldn't just enjoy my pregnancy, but I had this fear of just bringing my daughter to life, right? I I expressed this and expound on this in an article called Let Her Be Born and Handled Warmly that's actually inspired by Ntozake Shange's For Colored Girls, uh, Let Her Be Born and Handled Warmly is a line from that book. And I borrowed that to think about how just letting her be born is is already a prayer. And I think for many people, that anxiety may not exist as much. Um, But just wanting to make sure that she would be alive and be brought into this world and that I would be too, right? And then the other part of that is to be handled warmly. Some of my fears were around the ways that, you know, Black women are treated. You know, Malcolm X talks about the the Black woman being the most disrespected and mistreated person in America, right? This is this is what he um, he commented and, and, and stated. And, um, and I wanted kindness and tenderness and warmth to be her experience. Experience. And that is something that I work diligently to cultivate in the space that I provide for my daughter and just the people that I have around her being invested in offering that to her as well. You had considered for yourself, is it ethical for Black people to have children when they are doomed to experience such harshness? But you countered that using the wisdom of Black writers and literature. Yes. So uh, this is a conversation I have in my class um, when we read uh, Nella Larson's Quicksand. So in that uh, text, the character Helga um, says that she doesn't wish to have children. And she actually uses a lot of language that refers to it as a sin, you know, um, that implies that it would be unethical to bring into uh, into the world people who are doomed um, to suffer. Right. And um, that so there becomes this kind of ethical concern around that. And I know that, you know, even Claudia Rankin in her essay, The Condition of Black Life is One of Mourning. She uses the story of a black mother who, as soon as she gives birth to her son, says, you know, 
we have to get out of the U.S. We have to get out of America because all she can feel is dread for his life. Right. So that is absolutely a fear that myself and many of my um, friends who are also black women and, and black mothers express. But I think, you know, Imani Perry said it perhaps best in this really great essay where she says racism is terrible. Blackness is not right. That we can't confuse those things. Blackness and racial oppression are not synonyms. Going back to Nikki Giovanni again, she has this beautiful uh, poem called Nikki Rosa, where she talks about, you know, her childhood and how how people often um, misunderstand her childhood and think that because they were poor that they weren't happy but she says she had great Christmases and that she loved her her father and and that she enjoyed her childhood and that the mistake that people make and specifically she actually says I I hope no white person ever decides to write about me right because they will never understand that black love is black wealth right so The confusion between racism and blackness, I think, is one that we need to diffuse. And I think that the intentional efforts at expressing black joy and thinking about black pleasure and things like that are ways of countering that um, almost confusion that people have between thinking about blackness as plight. And, 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 And that's just not that's just not true. There's a phrase you've used in your writing called affective asphyxia. Where does that phrase come from? Um, So I came up with this terminology while uh, writing my dissertation, which was about black rage and the title of the dissertation, um, Choking Down That Rage. And it came out of Bell Hooks' book, um, Killing Rage, where she's actually doing an analysis of Ludy Jones, who is a character in Ann Petrie's The Street. And in her analysis of her, she talks about how she has to choke her rage down. And as I was doing my research about rage more largely, I then read Brent Staples' essay, uh, Black Men in Public Spaces. And he talks about how navigating public space, he had to smother his rage. And then when I was thinking about the, the rallying cry of, I can't breathe, right, that this was a, a statement that a, a really a, a, a cry to be seen as a human being that so many black men have said as they were being killed and asphyxiated, usually in a chokehold fashion. Right. Eric Gardner, George Floyd both said this and countless others said this. And then we started to use that as a statement in the Black Lives Matter movement. But it was not just in memoriam, but it was also a way of recognizing the emotional suffocation that is a part of the condition of blackness. And so I wanted to come up with a term to kind of crystallize that. And that's where I got the term for affective asphyxia, because a lot of the times the terms of smothering and other forms of asphyxiation or suffocation is the imagery that writers and poets and thinkers and even everyday people use to describe this feeling of having to hold back your rage, your anger, your grief, your range of emotions and feeling that they will not be validated, they will not be legible and that you can't fully express it. So you're forced to kind of self-police constantly to be accepted. You know, you have said you look to Black women's literature for understanding and guidance in life professionally and personally. Is there a book in particular that you could recommend for listeners where they too might look for this wisdom? Wow, that is a tall order. That is a great question. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit and recommend two. <laughs> okay. Yes, totally. Okay. Um, so I absolutely recommend Claudia Rankin's um, Citizen and American Lyric. I think it's such a timely um, piece. And even though it came out in 2014, it continues to resonate with thinking about racial microaggressions, thinking about the physiological toll of racism on the black body, Thinking about, um, she talks about the fact that this text is really about interracial intimacy, right? These moments of encounters. And I've found that in the classroom, it has led to such insightful conversation and such transformative moments even as it forces students uh, to lean into discomfort and to put under analysis their anxieties about what's being represented in the text. Um, And then I have to say Sula, 
by Toni Morrison. I just think it's like a delicious read. Toni Morrison is masterful in talking about so many important um, ideas and themes and topics. And in that text in particular, in the beginning, she's actually talking about gentrification. She's talking about the ways that neighborhoods change, I think for Richmond readers in particular, because of our our history in, in, in this community and the ways that, you know, Black communities were um, destroyed, really, economically, that might resonate. But at the center of it is this relationship between two women and moving away from thinking about this plot towards heteronormative marriage as the most important relationship. I think it challenges our preoccupation with um, that kind of romantic and um, heteronormative love. Uh, so those would be the two, but it's really, really hard. It's like saying who your favorite kid is, <laughs> even though I only have one yeah. kid, but it's like, who's your favorite kid? <laughs> ah! You know, like my books are extensions of me, you know, but I would just, I, I'll start, I'll start with those two. <laughs> Charmaine Jones, this has been such an honor and a treat to have you on With Good Reason. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Charmaine Jones is an English professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Desegregation changed things on paper, but people continue to live how they were taught to live and how history has taught them to live. Marvin Childs understands this well. He's now a professor of African-American history at Old Dominion University. His new book, The Struggle for Change, Race and the Politics of Reconciliation in Modern Richmond, explores the slow and ever-evolving desegregation of Virginia's capital city. Marvin, people say Richmond is at an inflection point when it comes to reimagining government, society, a place where everybody gets a fair shake. Do you see it that way? Is Richmond on the cusp of good change? Yes, absolutely. Uh, It has taken the city decades to get to the point to where it is now a fully multicultural city, a place that embraces its racial diversity, a place that understands its history, a place that that seeks to enact good governance and a good quality of life for everyone. You know, Richmond for years has been called the capital of the Confederacy, but in your epilogue, you call it the capital of reconciliation. Is that true or is that more imagining and wishful thinking? (laughs) No, it is. Um, It is. It is. Um, Richmond, by the late 90s and early 2000s, had come to want to investigate its racial history. Many residents, and I'm talking local power brokers, as well as grassroots organizations, wanted to figure out how come, although Richmond was integrated um, and, you know, in terms of blacks and whites aren't aren't segregated officially by law, um, but by custom they were. And they wanted to know why. And what they came to the conclusion was that Richmonders, black and white, had their own separate interpretations of the city's past. And that past... Uh, led to current divides between whites and blacks in terms of where they chose to live, where they chose to send their kids to school, how they interacted with each other in public. Um, And so throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, Richmonders uh, of all all, uh, backgrounds engaged in a massive public history campaign to promote black history, to put it alongside of its Confederate history, to recontextualize its Confederate history. And it put Richmond in a place, a special place, um, where it was now ready to finally bury racial division, um, again, as a city, uh, acknowledge that it existed, acknowledge where it came from, and now we're willing, as a city, to bury that and begin to build a new society for everyone. Now, you mentioned that white Richmonders and black Richmonders had a different idea of their separate histories in their minds when they thought of what Richmond is. What would you say those two histories are? So white Richmonders looked at their history through the accomplishments of great white men. So so we're talking your founding fathers, you're talking your city fathers. And so that was white Richmonders version of their city's history, um, was a place that was at the forefront of the American founding during the late 1700s, a place that was at the forefront of maybe a new American founding, that being the Confederate States of America. And it was also the capital uh, or the hotbed of massive resistance to court order 
border desegregation by the 1950s and 60s. Black Richmonders, uh, they looked at their history differently. They didn't deny the other side, but they said, hey, all of those things, all of those people, they did whatever they could to keep Black people beneath the thumb of whites, to keep them in a separate caste to keep them as a uh, second-class citizenry within the city. So trap them in low-wage labor, prevent them from accessing the social ladder. And those two divided views of their history kept the people separate in, in custom um, and in practice, even after Jim Crow laws were lifted. You know, it's so interesting. You write that after all those years of racial separation, apartness, and strife, people were still after all that, mentally segregated. That's a really powerful way to put it, that they were mentally segregated. Could you talk a little bit about that feeling? Yeah. So by the late 50s, early 1960s, the civil rights movement, it's it's touching down in, in every Southern locality. So it touches down in Richmond like everywhere else. Um, and when it does, Black Virginians, and particularly people in Richmond, really felt that once legal change came, whites would by and large accept it and keep going. That didn't happen. Um, and there was a lot of resentment on both sides after the 1960s, going into the 70s, going into the 80s and 90s. Um, and that's really where that separate culture uh, between blacks and whites, that's where it continued uh, going forward after the 1960s, um, was because when black Richmonders embraced the civil rights movement, white Richmonders did not accept it. You talk about grassroots organizers in the 1980s who put pressure on local banks to grant home loans for black people, and that in some ways that was both good and bad as it turned out. So yes, by the 1980s, grassroots organizations, these were interracial groups. Um, I want to make that very clear. One of the things they targeted uh, was housing segregation. And so these groups used the Community Reinvestment Act, which was passed in 1977, that made it almost impossible to legally redline. They gathered enough data and evidence, overwhelming evidence, by the way, to prove that Richmond's uh, banks were illegally segregating housing by race in the city and in the suburbs. And so these grassroots activists, they uh, they wisely use this to end redlining. My family took advantage of that to move me to the suburbs. A lot of black middle class people did that. And it bled the local school system of not just families that could afford to own homes, that could that could fund the school system financially through property taxes, but it bled them of, of, of human capital. And so you had in Richmond City, you had a high concentration of, of low-income black and brown students as a consequence of the progress that actually happened and that I actually benefited from. And it's made it harder for uh, black children in Richmond to gain the skills to get the jobs that have come to the city as a consequence of the racial progress. You also write that at the end of the 20th century, a lot of Fortune 500 companies moved into Richmond because it was between Atlanta and New York, and Richmond was getting much better racially. But you also say the lived reality of all those years of overt racism proved still to be a problem when it came to jobs and getting a piece of the pie for people. Yes, it did. Richmond was a town, by and large, that was built on manufacturing. And so it was easy to be blue-collar middle class for most of Richmond's history. Well, by the late 20th century, early 21st century, with these new entities coming in, you needed to have a high level of, of education to get those jobs. And many of the people who were blocked out of that were black and brown people from the working class who were stuck in inner city schools that were very much underfunded because of middle class people leaving the city school and keeping them in a state of poverty. What do you make of what happened during the street protests of 2020 over the issue, the symbolic issues of monuments, among other things? What did that moment tell you about where these eras and states of mind about racial harmony converge, right? So what they tell me is that there were younger activists that were a lot more, that were a lot more aggressive. And I don't mean that in a bad way, right? I mean aggressive as in they were not as satisfied with the way that Richmond had normally conducted 
progress, right? So Richmond was a city where progress happened incrementally. You know, if you look at progress as, you know, a big bang or a home run, you're never going to see it in Richmond. Where you're going to see where you're going to see it is very very slow, methodical changes that lead to greater outcomes in the end. And so the 2020 uh protest issue over the over the statues is exactly what happened is where you have younger activists who, you know, who are living in a city that promotes itself as inclusive, as multicultural, as accepting of its racial history, its sins of the past. And they're like, why are these dang statues still here? We we know about them. We've been educated publicly about them. Why are they still here? Um, and then you had a lot older activists who I've spoken to uh, who were a part of the book, some on the record, others off the record. You know, they said, hey, you know, there are other issues. There are bigger fish to fry in the city. If you go after the monuments, then you could set back the long march of incremental progress in Richmond because you're going to ignite real backlash. And it's not that the backlash has any legitimate basis to it. It's you're going to put people in a position to where they have to be on a defensive. And that's not how real change takes place. And so and so those two groups really, really butted heads during the 2020 issues. And that's how I see it as a historian. It's just it's a generational divide between activists who all ultimately want the same thing. The city of Richmond is a 21st century city. That's that's the one biggest takeaway I wanted, you know, readers to get, I want people to get, um, is that Richmond is a 21st century city. It is a city that is inclusive, is a city that has embraced its mission to, to create a good quality of life for all of its residents, to promote human flourishing. Um, and that the sins of the past, the lost cause, uh, the lost cause Confederacy uh, legacy, Jim Crow segregation, slavery, these are things that city residents acknowledge. These are, city, these are things that city residents have investigated, and these are things that they're trying to overcome in everyday action. They're not perfect, they're not, they're not always gonna get it right, but Richmond is a city that understands where it is and where it's going. And I also want them to take away that Richmond is not unique in this regard. Richmond is like every other city of its size and even bigger um, in that you have good, rational actors trying to do the right thing. However, they create unintended consequences outside of their control. And, and if we view if we view things that happen that don't happen the way that we think they should, or if we view things that happen or policies that are enacted that that disproportionately harm groups of people, don't just revert back to evil, right? Do not chalk it up to malice. Sometimes there is malice, right? Uh, but don't chalk it up to malice automatically. Go investigate Think about what are the what are the intended outcomes by those who are the architects of it, and and it creates to, for me at least in my belief it creates a more uh, humane society. It creates a more understanding society, and it makes it e- it makes it easier for people not to revert back to just dividing themselves because they believe the other side is bad. Marvin Childs is a professor of African American history at Old Dominion University. His new book is The Struggle for Change, Race and the Politics of Reconciliation in Modern Richmond. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. From Virginia Humanities, I'm Sarah McConnell. The 2017 Summer of Hate in Charlottesville became a worldwide media event. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! Images and videos from that day were shared millions and millions of times and continue to be used in pop culture. Very fine people on both sides. Aniko Bodrakosi is a media studies professor at the University of Virginia. Her new book, Making Hashtag Charlottesville, Media from Civil Rights to Unite the Right, looks at how the far right borrowed media strategies from the civil rights movement and how the images that each inspire continue to shape politics. Aniko, you make the case in your book that Charlottesville has become on a par with Selma and Birmingham as shorthand for America's ongoing race struggles. So saying the city name in each case conjures up a moment, an iconic moment in white supremacy. That's right. Um, When I decided I had to write about what happened in Charlottesville in the summer of 2017, Charlottesville being 
my town. I live here. I found these odd, somewhat distressing similarities, mirror images um, to these two key media events in the civil rights era that put the struggle for racial justice in sharp relief. And then seeing what happened in Charlottesville, which also became a major media event, and it seemed clear to me that part of what was happening here was an attempt to undermine, destroy basically all of the advances that came out of what happened in Birmingham in 1963, and then the Selma campaign of 1965. And what were the explosive events that happened in those two cities? In Birmingham, Martin Luther King and his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, decided that Birmingham, Alabama, which was nicknamed Bombingham because of the number of Ku Klux Klan and white supremacist bombings of African-American neighborhoods and buildings, what King and his, um, his organization wanted to do was to spotlight what Jim Crow segregation, what that was all about. Two years later, in Selma, Alabama, Martin Luther King and the, SC, the SCLC, uh, along with other civil rights organizers, wanted to use that town to spotlight African-American disenfranchisement. So in both cases, the strategy that the civil rights movement was using is we're choosing specific towns to dramatize the struggle against Jim Crow segregation, the struggle against disenfranchisement. The point being, you make it dramatic, you create a confrontation so that you get media attention. And particularly in the 1960s, that media attention meant television. And for Charlottesville, the people in the alt-right, the conservatives, the white supremacists, flipped the script. Right. That's what, the, the more that I looked into this, because I'm a civil rights historian, the more I looked at and thought about what had happened in Charlottesville, the more I saw that, yes, the alt-right organizers had learned the civil rights movement's successful strategies of creating a stage set for confrontation in order to build a movement. What was so distressing, I mean, there's all reasons to be distressed about what happened in Charlottesville, but what was so distressing is that they were using the organizing tools of the civil rights movement to destroy all of the gains of the civil rights movement. I want to ask you how they did that, but first, let me ask you, what happened in Charlottesville the night of August 11th, 2017, and then the following day, August 12th, 2017? So this was all part of this kind of coming out party for what was then kind of referred to as the alt-right, um, a term that Richard Spencer, one of the most high-profile members of this new version of white supremacy, what they wanted to do was to take their movement and make it a movement kind of in the streets. It had largely been organizing um, in online spaces. So they brought together all of these white supremacists, neo-Nazis, alt-right, alt-light militia groups uh, who didn't all necessarily play well with each other uh, for basically two separate media events. The first, the night of August 11th, which they organized 
on the central grounds of the University of Virginia, um, a World Heritage Site. And they did this very, very deliberately. They came with torches, tiki torches, which of course have all kinds of resonances to the Ku Klux Klan, to the Nazis in, in Germany in the 1930s. And the point was to create a powerful, visually dynamic media event attractive for disaffected young white men. And let me describe what that looked like. This was nighttime with hundreds of young men carrying these torches and filing two by two, all shouting in unison, Jews will not replace us, and blood and soil and other Nazi slogans. Right, right. The point being to kind of reclaim this space for whiteness. It was so powerful visually that actually clips of that video of the Torchlit Parade have aired as the series opening for several different popular TV series. Right, yeah. And had that been where the Unite the Right ended, if it had ended the evening of August 11th, I think this could have been a really powerful organizing venue for the alt-right. But then there were the activities the next day. And I remember that day, almost a thousand young men from all over the country, many armed to the hilt, had gathered in one of the parks where Charlottesville intended to remove Confederate statues. Well, the big event that day was supposed to be that the alt-right was going to march into Lee Park and have their big rally. And yes, all of these militia groups, uh, who for the most part said they were there to keep the two sides separate. Now, the other side, of course, were hundreds of Charlottesville counter-demonstrators, many of whom had been trained in nonviolent direct action protest tactics, right, the kind of tactics that we can trace back to the civil rights era, um, and smaller contingents of um, Antifa groups um, who were far more confrontational. And also just people coming in from other nearby cities who wanted to join the fight against this threat to democracy. Yes, yes. There were a significant contingent of clergy who came to Charlottesville uh, because local Charlottesville clergy, very similar to what Martin Luther King had done in the midst of the Selma campaign, when he had asked clergy from around the country, come to Selma, stand with us. Um, so so again, this this is you know all the ways that I was seeing resonances to uh, these major civil rights era uh, moments. Uh, so there were clergy, there were townspeople, and there were significant numbers of trained anti-racist, anti-fascist counter demonstrators. And then hours of clashing in the street. Yes, and. The alt-right expected that. They wanted those confrontations because, again, that's one of the lessons of the civil rights era. It's one of the lessons of what happened in Birmingham and what happened in Selma is the segregationist forces in Birmingham, Alabama, in Selma, Alabama, clashed violently with the civil rights marchers and protesters. Civil rights marchers were nonviolent. They knew that white supremacists would behave violently. That's what white supremacists do. So again, in this flip the script kind of way, alt-right contingents knew that they were going to encounter counter-protesters. And they expected to beat them up. I mean, if you look at the at alt-right social media postings, 
they're organizing for this. They're talking about this. They're strategizing about this in their social media posts on this um, social media platform called Discord. That was the plan from the very beginning. Uh, and of course, it happened um, and led to really distressing and horrifying media imagery. Would you say that this was a win for the alt-right and the organizers? Did they achieve their purpose? Not at all. Um, because as we know, it wasn't just the confrontation in the street in front of the park where uh, the Robert E. Lee statue is. When Virginia State Police declared this an illegal assembly. And so the, the rally in the park was not going to happen. And alt-right forces just were, were kind of flushed out throughout downtown Charlottesville. Everything culminated in what I think you know, we, we're all fairly familiar with, which is a terrorist car attack. Um, a neo-Nazi in his muscle car revved his car through a small side street where a significant contingent of counter-protesters were marching in a kind of celebratory way because it was all over and, you know, and that the, the rally was not going to happen. And dozens are injured, some grievously, and Heather Heyer is killed, you know, through blunt force trauma, which, of course, you know, then becomes another horrifying similarity to the way that the Selma campaign ended. At the end of the Selma campaign, which was a march from Selma to Montgomery, 25,000 marchers in Montgomery, the state capital, well, those marches had to be ferried back to Selma. So a white housewife uh, who had come down to Selma from Michigan, Viola Liozzo, she's ferrying marchers back to Selma in her car, and she gets run down by a group of Ku Klux Klansmen who fire into her car and kill her. So, you know, at the end of the Unite the Right rally, we have a neo-Nazi killing a white female counter-protester in this horrible similarity to the way that the Selma campaign ends with Klansmen killing a white female counter-protester. And you write about not only are there these similarities between the protests and stark contrasts, you find a lot of similarities between images from Selma and Birmingham and iconic images that emerged from Charlottesville. Yes, there's one, what's often considered the most iconic photo from the Birmingham campaign of 1963, the day that the Director of Public Safety named Bull Connor looses police dogs and high-powered fire hoses on mostly very young, high school and younger, counter-protesters. So the one photo that gets reproduced over and over again is of a 15-year-old young man who is being mauled by a police dog while there's another dog with its fangs open right by him. And it's a remarkable photo because it looks like he is leaning right into the attack and he's got a kind of impassive facial expression. So it looks like an image of abject victimization. The most famous photograph of the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally is a photo that won the Pulitzer Prize, and it was taken at the moment of the car attack. And what we see is bodies flying everywhere. Mostly you just see pieces of bodies. But at the very center of the image, there's a young African-American man. Um, who has been flipped over the car, and we see him in midair, 
uh, with his body in a tortured kind of position because his his leg has been horribly damaged. But when when I kept looking at that photo, because you have to look at it a long time to kind of see what's going on, he had the same impassive expression. So in both these photos, separated by 50 years, what's the narrative? What's the story? It's the story of black victimization, of black people seeming to succumb to um, the violence of white supremacy. There's another one. You also see this sort of consilience between an image of John Lewis being beaten at the rally 50 years earlier and a black man in Charlottesville who's being surrounded by people with sticks beating him. Right. Uh, So in 1965, um, at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which you know has now become kind of a famous landmark in civil rights history, uh, John Lewis was leading a group of marchers across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They were planning to march 50 miles to Montgomery um, and get stopped. And John Lewis is beaten by. Alabama state troopers and the famous photo, which became particular, which was circulated over and over again uh, when John Lewis passed away in the summer of 2020. Uh, And it shows him on the ground being beaten by um, an Alabama state trooper. And so that's telling, again, a story of African American victimization by kind of, you know, powerful forces of white supremacy. In Charlottesville on August 12th, a young um, teacher's aide named DeAndre Harris um, found himself surrounded in a downtown Charlottesville parking garage by a group of white supremacists. And... Uh, cell phone video of his beating went viral. And what you see is the exact same thing. You've got these white supremacists with poles beating him. He's on the ground cowering in the exact same visual position that we see John Lewis. Um, So again, it's this same narrative of what seems to be empowered white supremacists. Uh, so what we see is the, what we see the same narrative of what seem to be empowered white supremacists and victimized African Americans. Why do you say that the alt-right did not succeed in their aim in Charlottesville? If they did this terrific selection of staging and they had the torches, and the armed militias. Why didn't it work? Uh, it didn't work because of what happened on the 12th, which was the, the clashes in the streets of Charlottesville and the culmination of everything with the car attack. The death uh, of Heather Heyer. And the death of Heather Heyer. And also the fact that so many people showed up to counter protest. You think that made a difference? I think it made a huge difference. Uh, the many leaders in the city, uh, Charlottesville City Council, the mayor, were encouraging people to not counter protest. You know, the, the, the term, is, as, as I remember, was don't take the bait, don't give them the oxygen of publicity. Had counter-protesters not shown up, I think the alt-right would have seen this as um, as as a victory, you know, or of just small contingents of Antifa fighters, um, because that that's what they'd encountered in places like Portland and Berkeley. Um, But what was different in Charlottesville is so much of the community 
showed up. What does Charlottesville represent? What does it mean that this happened? It means that people who think that the gains of the civil rights era and the passage of the landmark legislation that came out of the civil rights era, that that somehow solved the nation's key problems with racism, an argument that seemed to gather steam when the nation elected its first African-American president, that that kind of optimism is not well-placed. Um, the gains of the civil rights movement have been fundamentally chipped away, particularly voting rights. The Voting Rights Act has largely been eviscerated. Um, and this idea that the civil rights movement was successful and successful permanently is not the case. And what happened in Charlottesville became a marker of how fragile those gains actually are. Aniko Bojakosi, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. Aniko Bojakosi is a media studies professor at the University of Virginia. Her new book is Making Hashtag Charlottesville, Media from Civil Rights to Unite the Right. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo and Liliana Bukowski are interns. Special thanks this week to Elliot Majerzyk, the producer of the podcast Overcoming Extremism, and to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.